What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have special guest, the one, the only, Cynthia Miller, a.k.a. Nurse Cindy. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great, Robert. Thanks for having me on today. Absolutely. Thanks for being on. So give me in the audience a little background kind of on what brings you into this space. I've, I've seen you speak at multiple conferences now. We kind of hang around the same group of people. I'd love to hear just how you even got in here in the keto space and the low-carb space to begin with. Well, thank you. Uh, it, it is an interesting story. As I was growing up, I was always the heaviest person in my class heaviest person in nursing school. I'm 62 years old. I've been a nurse 41 years. And my entire family was obese. And that's a past tense, was obese. But because we ate the same foods and our emotional response to food was from the the, the cradle, basically, we were all obese. And one day mm -hmm. my sister called me, Debbie Stokes, and she said, I knew she'd started low carb or keto, whichever way you want to call it. And she was like, yuck, 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 I feel so good. And I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. But, and I kept, you know, sort of like, I got to go. I've got emails to answer. My boss is calling. I just didn't want to hear it because carbs to many of us, not to every single person, but to many of us are actually addictive. And so if you've ever tried to talk to an alcoholic about slowing down or stopping their drinking, you can only hear it when you're ready. People can talk, but you only hear it when you're ready. So she took what I call a flanking move. If any of you are sports football fans, she flanked. And instead of her trying to convince me, she said, okay, if you, and this is after numerous phone calls, she said, what if I send you a video? Would you watch it for me? And then give me your opinion. And she sent me the Dr. Sarah Hallberg TED Talk. That's uh, She's in these bright blue pair of pants. And Dr. Hallberg was talking about what if we've been treating type 2 diabetes wrong the whole time? And for whatever reason, I was ready at that point to hear it from someone else. So that's a mm -hmm. key thing. I think that, you know, when we try to, we're really close to someone, there's so many emotions about the uh, relationship that we have that sometimes it's better to let them hear it from a third party. So I, I, I listened to it. It made perfect sense. It answered a lot of the questions why I was unable to stay on any uh, traditional diet for any period of time. I'd lose a little bit. I'd get, you know, like so many um, yearnings to have certain foods and I would just go off it. So as they started to see, the rest of my family started to see my sister and I not only talk about our weight loss, but become more enthusiastic about how satisfied we were and how tasty the food was, they joined one by one. And so now we're down, I'm down a total of 75 and my family's down 917 last count. And this is a family that has always struggled and been extremely large. So to say that it has set me free is a vast understatement. So that's my personal journey. And then Ask Nurse Cindy was like just a mistake. <laughs> I never, I work full time as a nurse. I still work full time. I travel the nation lecturing on wound care, um, traumatic injuries, burns, um, you name it. Uh, I teach on that. So to have an Ask Nurse Cindy, Facebook page uh, was never an intention, but it just happened out of the exuberance of being set free from a food addiction. So with, with, um, I asked Nurse Cindy, like, what is your main 
focus with being a nurse and in, into the medical community? Is there like a specific focus you have or is it just kind of all across the board? It's all, it's really all across the board. I started it in my car and it's sort of an ongoing joke with the people that follow me is that my studio is my car. I'll say, Hey, I'm in my studio again, because I'll, when I have time, <laughs> like if I get to the airport early, I'm, I'm catching a flight or I get to work and the traffic was nice. Um, I'll do a quick video either about something that I uh, read in the literature or a lecture I heard. And what I enjoy doing um, is I enjoy taking things that can be very complex scientifically or medically and helping it be easy to understand for my audience. I, I started my very first Facebook Live in the parking lot of a Valero where I had gone in to get some coffee because I was on keto. I didn't have any hunger, but when I walked in and I saw all these people that were anywhere from chubby to morbidly obese, buying the very snacks that I used to buy, and I went and I got my black coffee and I walked out and I sat in the car and I thought, I have been set free. I, I, I was so, you know, when, and it's, it's based on science, why you have this compulsion to eat every couple of hours if you're eating a lot of carbohydrates. And so I went out in the car and I closed the door and I said, my daughter, Rachel had taught me, uh, she's a type one diabetic and she taught me how to do a Facebook live just so I could capture things when I was traveling for her. And I, I, I started this Facebook live and I talked a little bit about how wonderful it is at, at the time I was 59 to be set free from a lifetime of hiding food. It's a classic addictive behavior I was exhibiting. You hide your addiction. You don't let people see how much you need it. You, you do things, work around so people don't find the wrappers. I would throw them away. I would stop before I got home and get something to eat and throw the wrappers away. So I did this little video from my car. And at the time, all, my Facebook page was basically old high school buddies nursing friends and my children, because that's how I basically electronically stalked them so I could see what was going on. I did this little <laughs> video. It's true. It's true. It's how I kept up with them and still do between that and Instagram now. And I said to the camera, I am putting a stick in the sand and I'm saying to anyone in my page that listens to this, I have been set free. And this is how, and this is why. And I, finished the video. It was very short. I start driving away and boom, boom, boom. All these people started to ask to be my friend. I had no idea what was happening. So I called Rachel and I said, Rachel, what's happening? And so she went onto Facebook and she watched it. And she said, mom, it's resonating with people and they're wanting to, they're sharing it and they want to be your friend. And I'm like, but I don't want them to be my friend. So we talked about, you know, not that I don't want to be my friend, but not on my personal page. And so she said, you need to start your own page. And so we talked about a a title, and I'm not a very fancy person. I like to keep it simple. So we came up with Ask Nurse Cindy and started the Facebook page. And I now just hit 59,000 followers just today. So that's sort of... Uh, my that's, that's very impressive. I mean, the fact that you can influence that many people, I mean, that, that, that's powerful right there. And you've got a very powerful message. So it's, I'm glad that they're tuning into your, your channel. Well, thank you. And, and it has been so rewarding when I go to the conferences, right? People answer, you know, when I'm doing a live or something, or I've done a video talking about type 2 diabetes and what is it or fatty liver. And they like, oh, that's the very first time I've ever understood it. Think, you know, so it, it, it is very rewarding. It's very fulfilling. And hopefully, with this time that you and I are spending together today, 
people who, whether they're in the bodybuilding world or whether they are just regular old folks like I am, we can hopefully go through some things that will make sense to them and help them understand that what we put in our mouth is more powerful than we ever, ever knew. I, I've been, a, I, like I said, 38 years as a registered nurse, not understanding the power of food, and the last three years starting to really grasp that I can unprescribe medications for myself. I can work with my doctor, and what I put in my mouth can absolutely not only set me free from addiction, but it can change the trajectory of every day of the rest of my life. And that's my passion, is to try to take things that are quite complex and break them down. And I'm also, the other part of what I do on Ask Nurse Cindy is I have a very encouraging message. No matter where you are today, you don't have to stay there. And if you have fallen and the wagon fell, ran over you, backed up and reversed and <laughs> did it again, it's okay. We're all learning. We're all in different places. And, and there's always hope. We're, we never need to give up because it's not working. We just might need to tweak a few things. So that's, that's what I do in my spare time when I'm not working. Well, I will say this about you, Nurse Cindy. Of all the people at these conferences and all the people that I've interacted with, you said you're 61 years old. And I would, I would be willing to bet that you could run circles around any of us because <laughs> you have this conviction about you that just speaks to your inspiration and motivation to make an impact. And for that, I am forever grateful. Thank you. And don't take away that extra year. I'm 62. <laughs> 62, 62. You know, at this well, age. I mean, you, you look like you're 39, so I don't know what's going on there. Oh, well, you know, you've just earned points, and those points are redeemable. <laughs> They're redeemable well, for other things later. I don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> we'll dive into, I mean, you, you get asked a whole bunch of questions on a regular mm -hmm. basis. Mm -hmm. What are some of the biggest confusions? Like, what, what are some of the, the common things that you break apart and bring down to the nuts and bolts that make it easier to understand for people? So I think one of the most important things to get across to people is that there is a, 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 a literal tsunami. That's a big wave that can come in and wipe out the entire coastal area. There's a tsunami of obesity. There's a tsunami of chronic disease, especially type 2 diabetes, that is wrecking havoc and destroying our future. And, and that's as an individual, as families, and as a country. We are in the midst of a very chaotic time where we're getting messages that I believed for 59 years about eat less fat, increase your healthy grains, um, eat less, exercise more. And if you do that, it's just like a math equation. And we actually have been misled in the sense of the benefit to the pharmaceutical companies, the benefit to big food and big, big agra has allowed messages that aren't as pristine and pure about the research to come forth. So what I try to do is help people understand, because we've been told, and I thought, I mean, with all of my education and all that I do taking care of elderly patients with wounds who many times have diabetes, I thought that once you got type 2 diabetes, if you were a type 2 diabetic, it was a lifelong curse. You were never going to get over it. It was something that you just had to learn to live with. And what I found out now, starting with that first video by Dr. Um, oh, now her name just escaped me. The, the gal that uh, she's with Verta Health now. Oh, well, mm -hmm. 
brain just went out. It just went out of my brain. But starting with understanding what type two diabetes is, it's actually carbohydrate intolerance. I like to think of it when I look at something on a buffet because of my travel. I'm eating in airports, or I'm I'm at buffets, or I'm I'm eating out at restaurants with customers. And I, when I look at a carbohydrate-rich food today, not not when I first started, I realized that my body, after 59 years of overeating carbohydrates, because I was following what they said, I was doing what they said to some extent. Um, I Exposed myself to so many carbohydrates, I developed the, the equivalent of an allergy. In other words, when I eat carbohydrates, I have a very severe visceral response in that I have a huge amount of insulin that comes out, and my blood sugar, because of the carbohydrates, slams down, and then I feel hungry two hours later. I literally, as my blood sugar comes back down, and I'll break this down a little bit more, um, as my blood sugar drops suddenly when the insulin grabs onto the glucose in my bloodstream and pulls it out, I literally feel queasy, I feel shaky, I'm hungry, I'm hangry. And so I was for 59 years eating over and over and over again. It wasn't that I was weak. It wasn't that I was a bad person. I felt that way. I felt the shame. I felt the um, social ostracism, especially when I was younger, when obesity wasn't so common. and I felt, how can I be such a, a, a great nurse, pretty intelligent? I think I'm hilarious. I find myself amusing, but I can't control my food. And it was just that I was eating the wrong type. So do you want me to break down what type 2 diabetes is or why car what carbohydrates do? Yeah, yeah, dive into that. I think that'd be really relevant information for people to hear. So most of you who follow Robert probably understand that food is basically a combination of micronutrients, which would be your sodium, your potassium, your manganese, you name it. There's a lot of micronutrients, and they're important for our health, but they have no calories. There's no calories attached to them. Then there's the macro. So think micro, itty bitty, no calories. Macronutrients are the three building blocks. I have a video where I show I use a red, a yellow, and a blue Lego building block to talk about that every food we eat is a combination of these macronutrients. And those macronutrients, those big things that make food, are protein, carbohydrates, and fats. And what we've been told for most of us have not been alive much longer than 60 years, and the guidelines came out in the late 70s. So all we remember and all our children and our grandchildren know is that fat is scary. Fat will kill you. Avoid fat. Eat Eat uh, a little bit of protein, but protein has fat, so be afraid, and eat your whole grains and, and low fat. So we have these three macronutrients. We're, we're deathly afraid of the fat, but of those three, the only one that is not going to cause me to have metabolic disease is the fat. Uh, protein, not as much, but let me, let me sort of step back a minute. So when fat breaks down, it breaks down into fatty acids. Some of those fatty acids I can make inside of my body, but there's a set of fatty acids that are called essential. Those are essential for life, and I cannot manufacture them inside my body, so I must consume them from an outside source for my body to have access to them. So fats are mandatory for life. I need to have them to live. Without them, I will eventually die. Protein breaks down into when the body digests it. When I say breaks down, I mean the body digests it into usable pieces. And that protein breaks down into amino acids. Now, those amino acids are very vital. 
Uh, fat makes hormones. Fat helps line um, and insulate our nerves. It has so many important functions. Protein or the amino acids that are the digested part of the protein. These amino acids are used for many things, cellular repair, building uh, new cell walls. It's important for function of the hormones. Um, if you are into weightlifting or bodybuilding, it's vital that you have enough protein because if you're trying to put on muscle mass, it is something that you have to have those amino acids to do. And even if you're not, even if you're a 62-year-old, uh, basically sedentary, most of my life woman, we must be very concerned about getting adequate protein because once you're over 50, um, maybe 55, you will lose. If you don't address it, if you're not intentional about getting adequate protein, you will waste muscle. In other words, lose it at the rate of about 1%. Let's say you had 100 pounds of muscle, not that I do. But let's say I had 100 pounds of muscle. At age 61, I'd have 99 pounds. At age 62, I'd have 98 pounds. So that's called muscle, wa muscle wasting. Um, and the medical term for that is cachexia or, sarco or sarcopenia. And I don't want that to happen because the most common reason that an elderly person age 60 and up goes into a nursing home, meaning having to leave their home, leave all of their hobbies, leave a lot of times their friends, they go into a nursing home because they cannot get up out of a chair. They have lost so much muscle mass, they don't have enough strength in their legs to get up. Or they fall and their muscle mass has wasted to the point that they are going to break a bone, they're going to break a hip. So protein is vital. There's essential amino acids I cannot get within my body by, you know, making its own. So I must eat protein. So we've realized that fat, I must have. Protein, I must have. Let's look at carbohydrates, the thing we've been told to eat for the past 50 or 60 years. Carbohydrates, and they comes in many forms, everything from simple sugar to honey, agave, Tacos, taquitos, tamales. I live in Texas, so there's a lot of that going on here. We call it vitamin T for short. That's a joke. Um, but <laughs> I told you I was funny. I told you I was funny. <laughs> vitamin T. I told you, Robert, I'm hilarious. So when we look at what carbohydrates do, they break down. If I eat a piece of fruit, it, it produces a type. It, um, my body has now taken in fructose. All sugars have OSE at the bottom. So if it's lactose, fructose, glucose, sucrose, it's always going to end in OSE. That indicates to me that it is some type of sugar. Now that sugar, when I eat it, it will break down, whether it's a complex carb or a simple carb, it doesn't matter. The body will very quickly, whether it's a white potato or a sweet potato, the bot, there's a little bit of fiber difference between the two, but the body will break that down into its usable components, which is glucose, or the liver will process the fructose from the fruit. And that glucose, as it's elevated into the bloodstream, it gets into the bloodstream, just like the amino acids do, the proteins do, it has to be transported out. Now, the fat goes into the system a different way. We're not gonna have time to talk about that today, but what's interesting is that the body has a very special range of blood sugar or blood glucose, depending on which term you wanna use, that is safe, just like your temperature or your body. You, you get too hot, you can have a heat stroke, you can have a fever, you can die from it if the fever's over 105. Um, if you're hypothermic, your body temperature's too low, 
you you can die of hypothermia you get frostbite same thing with our blood sugar our blood sugar must be maintained within a very very tight range for our optimal functioning um, so what the body does af after i eat carbs and trust me i ate some carbs up to 3 years ago i was i was literally it was about all i ate um, what it does is when it senses that glucose is being produced from the breakdown of our, our food, it signals, there's these little messengers, I tell people it's like a text messaging or twittering each other. They're like, incoming glucose. And so the pancreas goes on high alert. It says it recruits all these soldiers and they flood into the bloodstream and they look at the glucose that's elevated. It has to leave some glucose in the bloodstream. And literally, glucose cannot exit the bloodstream. It's like being on a long interstate with no exits. You're stuck on that interstate. You're in a car, and that car is stuck. So if you've ever been on a long stretch of the road, and there's an accident ahead, and there's no exits, it backs up. So that amount of glucose, when it's elevated, the body does what it's supposed to do. It will send insulin out of the pancreas. It sort of grabs the hand of the glucose. It says, hey, buddy, you're you're there's too many of you around here. Let's go in. I'm going to put you somewhere where you're either going to be used, and that would be my muscles will use the glucose if I'm, you know, working out or active, or it will be stored. And think of that as your savings account. Okay, so if I'm earning a certain amount of money, some of it I'm going to use for my day-to-day -day expenses, and some of it, if I'm smart and I'm looking for retirement, I'm going to store it. And when the body doesn't need the glucose for muscle function or brain function or just um, the cellular function, it will say, oh, I need to store this because there may not be a meal for the next couple of days because our body still operates on prehistoric principles. It has no idea we have dry food. It has no idea that even if I go to Lowe's department store, I'm going to be able to buy candy right there when I'm checking out with my two by fours and my lumber. So it yeah. has, <laughs> it really is, it really has no idea that food is so easily accessible because even 60 or 70 years ago, I don't know if any of you have parents or grandparents that survived the Depression. Food was scarce. People were extremely thin because food was very hard to obtain. And so our bodies today, we bombard them with glucose, 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 or fructose. But let's just focus on glucose. And so the body is going, oh, my God, store it. Oh, my God, store it. We got, we, there, there must be a big famine because you know how a bear eats right before they go into hibernation. And they, they're just ravenous. They eat all the berries. They go fish for the salmon because they're storing all of this fat so that during the time that they're hibernating, i.e. a famine, they can live off of the body fat. And so our body still thinks that this might be the last meal we have. So it wants to store anything excess and it's compelled to lower the blood sugar because it knows that blood, too much sugar in the bloodstream causes problems. So what happens if you've ever uh, turned on the car and somebody before you left the radio on really, really high because there's a really great song or you were really into Robert Sykes' podcast and you were like, yeah, I'm going to listen to this and you crank it up and you forget to turn it down. Well, what happens is our insulin, the pancreas, when we bombard ourselves over time, over years and years and years of too much glucose, the cells start to go oh my God, please, no, not another load of glucose. You just gave me some an hour ago. I can't even properly process this. So the insulin says, I'm going to make you process it. So it comes out, the pancreas secretes more insulin. 
this is where we hear that term uh, hyperinsulinemia. Hyper too much. If you had a hyperactive kid, you know what I mean. Insulin, that's what comes out. Emia, always E-M-I-A, means in the blood. So hyperinsulinemia means that the pancreas has cranked up the volume in order to force the cells to accept that glucose. And over time, the pancreas can no longer, the volume is all the way up. The pancreas has reached its maximum capacity to make more insulin. And so now there's no more, the, the cells are so resistant, and we hear this word insulin resistance, where the cells are insulin resistant. They're so stuffed full of calories, the stored carbohydrates we've given it, the stored glucose, that they, they're just, it's just like a suitcase when you, if you went to KetoCon like I did, Robert, and you came home with a bunch of stuff, a bunch of swag, I could barely fit it in my suitcase. So it was over, our cells are over full with fat. So now, because insulin can't go up anymore, now finally for the first time, and this is a 10 to 15 year process many times, that our hyperinsulinemia happens, we become insulin resistant, and now it starts to have too much sugar in the blood and it never drops down. And at that point, if you go for a physical or you go for some sort of exam and they test your blood sugar, your blood sugar might be 140. We want it to be somewhere between, depending on, I'd be happy if you were somewhere under 100 on your fasting blood sugar, um, but somewhere between 60 and 100 on your fasting, especially if you're older. Um, but what happens is that sugar, does that make sense, Robert, what type 2 diabetes are? Are there any questions for your audience that I can explain more? Clearly. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. So, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but the current standard of care is when people reach that point and they're admitted to the hospital because they're not, you know, seeing a decrease in their blood glucose, is they'll actually prescribe them, you know, additional insulin, correct? Right. So, exactly. They'll, ta they'll typically not go right to insulin, injectable insulin. They'll give, him, give them what's called a hypoglycemic. Um, they give you a medication, hypo-low, gly, meaning glucose. Uh, hypoglycemic, the EMIC, once again, is blood. Um, so what happens is they'll give you a pill that either makes your body produce more insulin or be more open to receiving it. It does not cure the problem. The problem is you're taking in, I was taking in too much glucose. The, so what we're doing is we're getting the blood sugars low, but they start to gain weight. And especially if they put you on injectable insulin, which some people will call exogenous or outside of the body, but injectable insulin, it is very common for them to, to gain 20 pounds in just a couple of months. And they absolutely have not changed their diet, but the sugar that was stuck in the bloodstream is now being forced out and being stored in, in the fat cells. See, it's, it's, it's crazy because like there's a, like in some of the non-tested bodybuilding shows, they'll, people will inject insulin as a way to, to build more muscle because insulin is such an extreme growth agent. But these people that are, you know, type 2 diabetics and getting insulin shots because they're not able to clear the glucose and they're not training. They're not obviously doing a bodybuilding show. So they're just sedentary mm -hmm. and they're getting this extreme growth agent of insulin. I mean, that's, it's just mind boggling how unhealthy that protocol is. That protocol is something I have heard about having never personally been a bodybuilder. Um, I'm just thrilled to be in regular size clothing and not have to go into the plus size in a woman's uh, clothing store. But at, it just goes to show you that with that targeted unhealthy, yes, because it can cause metabolic derangement that is def difficult to imagine when you're trying to cut for a show or do something to, to add muscle. But for us, when we talk about the 
I think they're saying 60% of the American adult population is now either pre-diabetic or actually type 2 diabetic, and the vat, over 50% of them don't even know. Because until it gets so bad that you start to have different changes in the different body parts, you don't even know. It's a very silent killer in many ways. And the way that they actually these days need to test early, and if you are listening to me and you've not been diagnosed with type two di as a type 2 diabetic, no matter where you're at or if you've been told you're pre-diabetic, the way they determine that today is not only that your fasting insulin is elevated, but you have an elevated hemoglobin A1C. Would you like me to explain what a hemoglobin A1C is? Certainly. We'll just go, we'll break it all down here. Okay, so we're going to go for the hemoglobin A1C. Now remember, glucose is floating through your bloodstream. I must have a certain level. If it drops too low, I literally can sweat, get um, hangry. I'm very, very hungry. My brain fog is really, it's a very, it's, you could drip sweat like you've been out running a race in the heat. So too low, not good. That's hypoglycemia or low blood sugar. Too high, hyperglycemia. That's when I kick into all the problems. So what, what's also floating through your bloodstream at the same time are our red blood cells. Now the red blood cells, of course, we know they carry oxygen to the cells and they also pick up debris or waste products. So I say people, um, your oxygen, when I breathe in, I've just taken in a breath and that, that oxygen that's in the atmosphere goes and it, it gets into the bloodstream pretty quickly. It attaches to the red blood cell, specifically to the hemoglobin molecule. And that hemoglobin molecule, think of it like a school bus, and there's seats on the bus. And the oxygen gets on the bus, and it gets taken to the area that needs oxygen. It hops off the bus, and the oxygen oxygenates the cells. At the same time, since the doors are open, cellular byproducts, the byproducts of metabolism, the junk, gets on the bus and is, is excreted through our air, through our breath. It's excreted through our kidneys and, and through our liver and all this stuff. But so it's a bus where the, the cell, the oxygen gets on and gets off. The carbon dioxide and the waste products get on and they get off. However, that bus will also carry glucose around and glucose can fit inside the bus. And whereas the oxygen and the carbon, di uh, carbon dioxide and the metabolized um, debris are on and off, on and off multiple times a minute, once glucose gets on the bus, that glucose will not get off the bus until the bus breaks down. In other words, it gets on the red blood cell, it attaches itself to the hemoglobin molecule, and it never gets off of the hemoglobin molecule until the red blood cell dies. Every red blood cell in our body has an average lifespan of three months. So that's why your doctor only checks your hemoglobin A1C once every three months, because by the time the next three months have rolled around, whether your red blood cell was midlife, was just being born or was old, you have brand new red blood cells. And what they do is they measure how much sugar, glucose, is stuck to your hemoglobin molecule, thus the hemoglobin A1C. You'll hear some people call it a glycosylated hemoglobin. And what that means is that the hemoglobin has stuck there and it's taking up room. The more room seats on the bus that are filled with glucose, the less I the less I have the ability to get oxygen down to the capillaries in my eyes, in my kidneys, in my feet, in my brain, 
And what they're calling Alzheimer's these days is they're starting to call it type 3 diabetes because we have increasingly stuck more glucose on the bus and it isn't getting off. So there's less oxygen being perfused. And the other thing that's scary is it doesn't just stick to the red blood cell, Robert. What it does, if you've ever given a kid um, some cotton candy or a lollipop, you know how sticky their hands get. Their fingers, or if you've, per if you've personally ever had that, you will know that there is a sticky and your skin is protein, your skin is collagen. And so mm -hmm. that, that sugar sticks to your um, protein on your hands. It sticks to the protein that is the hemoglobin in your red blood cell. It also sticks to every other protein. We glycate, that's the term for sugar sticking proteins. We glycate the, the proteins in our muscles. We glycate it in our joints. That's why a lot of people, when they go keto or low carb, they have much less joint pain. And I want you to think of this glycated sugar or the sugar glycating to your proteins as being, if you've ever had a tiny, if you've ever gotten a little tiny splinter in your finger, you can't really see it, but it hurts like a big dog. I mean, you, you yes. feel it, it becomes inflamed. That is because that shouldn't be there. And the only way to reduce that, and you can actually get an infection from it if you don't get it out. When that sugar glycates, or the glucose glycates to our proteins inside our body, it, it sets up an inflammation cascade like in our finger with a splinter. So what we're doing is we are by the food we eat. This goes back to food is more powerful than we ever knew. The food we eat can either give us the building blocks of amino acids and fatty acids we need to build muscle. It either helps us heal or it harms us. And that would be the glucose, the fructose, the high fructose corn syrup for sure. But all of these things that we bombard ourselves with sets up a chronic inflammation and every single disease state barring some sort of act of war or some sort of trauma or some infectious disease all have a root in inflammation. And when we remove the trigger of the little splinters of sugar sticking to all of our proteins inside our body, our body can start to repair itself. And that is basically, in a nutshell, <laughs> why, we, why we need to be very careful what we put in our mouth. And I never knew. For 59 years, Robert, I never knew. And I'm a nurse. Yeah, it truly is. I mean, I've always viewed things on a more of a macro level, like just with the background I've had in you know, bodybuilding nutrition, but, you know, breaking it down further to a micronutrient level and then, you know, diving deeper into those macronutrients, it really is eye-opening to see how those can have such an impact on your long-term health. I mean, those compounded over time, every single day you're eating food, you know, that, that has an exponential effect on your long-term health. And I think people need to view it through that lens. With regard to uh, the inflammation and the lack of oxygenation, if you have a high A1C, is that combination the reason you see a lot of people with type two diabetes having to, um, you know, have like lose lose their their yeah. toes, their fingers, their toes, go blind? Yeah. Yes. Um, so if we think about the way our and that's a really great question, Robert. So when we think about our heart is the pump that sends blood out throughout our body, that blood that comes out of the heart is the oxygenated blood. It goes down, so it comes out of the heart, it goes into our aorta, which is a very large uh, artery, our largest artery in our body, and it keeps branching off. It's like the trunk of a tree, and then you've got the leaves, and the leaves basically don't grow on the trunk of the tree, they grow at the end of the branches. 
And so as these arteries get smaller and smaller as they branch off to go into different parts of our body, they become smaller and their names change. Artery to arterial, arterial to capillary. It's at the very capillary level, tiny, it's about the thickness of one strand of hair. At that capillary level, that's where the oxygen gets off. That's where the carbon dioxide gets on and the other metabolites that need to be cleared from the body. And then it comes back up through the venous system. And the glycation that happens, if, you, if, I'm, if my A1C is supposed to be, if you've ever been told that your A1C is 6 or 5 or, or 10, that means that 10% of the available seats on the bus are now taken up by glucose. And as they stick to the glucose, as the glucose sticks to the hemoglobin molecule, it makes the red blood cell, for lack of a better term, it's not a scientific term, it makes it lumpy. So red blood cells are like little discs, almost like little frisbees. They're concave on either side. And when they get to that capillary, which is the, the width of a human hair, they're literally sort of tumbling around, sort of like scouring down the capillary, and then they come back up through the veins. And when they're lumpy and they're glycated and they have 10% of the seats on the bus taken up instead of just 5%, it absolutely starts to damage and inflame those very tiny capillaries. And whether you're five foot three like I am or six foot or four foot, the capillaries are going to be the tiniest blood vessel in your whole body. And so where do they make that U-turn? They make that U-turn in the foot. They make the U-turn in your eyes. The kidneys are very, very susceptible because they're our, one of our major filtrations. And urine is so full of all of the metabolites and the things that are, are toxic to us. And so when they are having to deal with glucose on a regular basis, our kidneys, they're just less functional. And so retinopathy, which is where I go blind, a neuropathy, I start to lose the feeling in my feet because the nerves need blood vessels too to feed them. It is a horrible cascade and it's not anything that we want to have. We don't wake up and say, boy, I hope when I'm 60, I get a big diabetic foot ulcer and I have to have my foot amputated. We just think it's inevitable. If I've been diagnosed with type 2, I'm probably going to lose a foot. Or people will say, well, everybody in my family has some part of their body amputated um, because they're diabetic, so I guess that's just the way it's going to be for me too. And I will point you towards the stuff out of Dr. Eric Westman's work out of Duke, out of the Verda Health stuff with Sarah Hallberg, Dr. Sarah Hallberg, um, the stuff that they're doing, Stephen Finney and Jeff Bullock, the stuff that um, we're looking at out of Jeffrey Gerber's um, work in Denver. It does not, it is not a life sentence if we understand that the power is between my fingers, what I pick up with my hand, and what I put in my mouth. And when I change what I put in my mouth, I tell insulin to stay home. Stay home, stay in the pancreas. I don't need you very much because I'm not putting excess sugar in. But it is absolutely many things. My daughter Rachel is a type 1 diabetic, which means that she does not produce any insulin. She will die if she does not take outside sources. She takes shots. She's on the insulin pump. And she had started was diagnosed at three. She's 37 now. And she had started to have very, very early changes of retinopathy, meaning parts of her capillaries in the back of her retina in her eye had started to have problems. And when she started keto about two and a half years ago, she went for an exam after about a year and her ophthalmologist looked in her eyes and sort of sat back and looked back down at her chart because you can imagine how many people they see in a year. So she checked the chart to make sure she wasn't imagining it. 
She looked back in Rachel's eyes, and she sat back, and she looked at Rachel. She goes, it's not as bad. And retinopathy is viewed as a permanent amount of damage to the diabetic eye, and you will never get it back. And you're going to have progressive loss until you go blind. And Rachel says, what do you mean? What's better? And she goes, you, you have some fresh capillaries. It's just not as bad. And Rachel didn't know all this. You know, she's a layman. And she goes, is that okay? And she goes, it's unheard of. It's unheard of for you to have less retinopathy than you had last year. What are you doing? Are you in some trial? Are you taking a new medication? And Rachel's like, no, I've dropped my carbohydrates and I've gone low carb keto. And the late, there's this female ophthalmologist, honest to goodness, Robert, burst into tears. And Rachel thought she defended her. And Rachel's like, what do you mean? Why are you crying? I'm so sorry. And, she, and the lady, she had to catch her breath and shaking her finger. She goes, give me a minute. And she looked at her and she says, my 11-year-old daughter was diagnosed type 1 diabetic two years ago. And all I've thought about is when is she going to go blind? She said, you have given me hope. And that's what I want to leave, you know, to have your audience walk away with today is there's hope. No matter where you're at, no matter how heavy you are, no matter how bad your arthritic pain is, no matter what your diagnosis is, what your A1C is. When my brother, Steve, who's also a registered nurse, started keto, his hemoglobin A1C, Robert, was 14. 14. That's crazy. That's crazy. He's lost over 100 pounds. His blood sugars are normal. His A1C is normal. And honestly, I mean, I'm amazed at how little time it takes to see you know, a noticeable change. Like, I mean, it, it takes time. You have to have a long game approach, but it's amazing how good your numbers start to, how quickly your numbers start to shift once you clean up the food. It really does. And and I tell people, you know, do the best you can with the money you have. Um, clearly, there's a, you know, there's advantage to having organic this, organic that, grass-fed this, grass-fed that. As Dr. Kenberry would say, panda massage this or that. Yeah. But But when you have a limited budget, just do the best you can. Don't not do it because you think, well, I can't afford that, so I, it's just not going to work for me. Dr. Eric Westman from Duke University has patients that all they can do is eat off of the dollar menu, and they still lose weight. So mm -hmm. a lot of the underserved areas of our country don't have good grocers, and these people don't have cars. They, they rely on public transportation, yet he is continually successful and getting his patients off of their diabetic medications, losing weight off of other medications for pain or for hypertension. And it's just amazing that if we just focus on getting the carbs out, especially the processed things, anything that comes to you in cellophane, you pretty much got to get out of your diet. When you do that, whatever you can afford, do the best you can. Don't give up and heaven forbid, don't trust the scales if you're trying to lose weight. Heaven forbid, don't trust them. Because as that inflammation resolves, as your body is realizing that, wow, I, I need to shift my metabolism. And uh, am I in a famine? I'm going to slow. After a couple of months, a lot of women, their weight loss stalls. And I tell them, it's your body making sure you're safe. It's your body saying, oh, God, is there a famine? Things have changed, and she's not eating as much, and she goes longer without eating. Is food hard for her to find? And so it, it takes a breather. And it checks to make sure you're safe because the body's prime directive is to keep you alive. And so don't trust the scales. Measure yourself, how you're clothes fitting, and do, do the best you can every day. 
And it is amazing how fast your markers change. It is amazing. In fact, many people, if you're on any type of hypoglycemic um, agent, any type of pill, oral anti-glycemic um, pill, or especially if you're on insulin, please don't start this way of eating without some sort of advice from someone or minimally what Dr. Westman does is he cuts his uh, people on insulin when they come to him. He cuts it down by 50% the very first day before they're ever in ketosis because otherwise you'll have severe low blood sugars and then you go into a coma and it could be very severe. So um, it is amazing how your body says, thank you, because it's like pulling out all these little splinters like we were talking about mm -hmm. your finger. It's amazing how fast your finger feels better when you pull out the splinter. And when we stop glycating and sticking sugar inside of the, our body to all these proteins that are lining our, our arteries and our joints and even our muscles, it's amazing how... Yeah, that was one of the main things I noticed right off the bat. Like I wasn't on... I started keto, you know, five years ago. I didn't really have any long-term medical issues, but I noticed from an inflammatory standpoint, I was able to train much more frequently without having that near the soreness that I had prior. So... From an anti-inflammatory standpoint alone, that's a huge motivation to start the diet. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I hadn't even thought of that, having always been overweight and always achy and headaches. I was waking up every day with headaches. I can imagine that if your goal is to put on muscle or to, to build strength, that if you're too sore to work out, you're, you're worried about, yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. That's a really good point. I want you to uh, flesh out type 1 diabetics on keto because for whatever reason there's this misunderstanding that if you're type one you have to have carbs and you can't follow keto which mm -hmm. couldn't be farther from the truth mm -hmm. so when we look at the type one diabetic patient who has no insulin whatsoever being produced because the pancreas has autoimmune attacked itself and shut down insulin production they can follow a ketogenic lifestyle they can drop their carbs but it needs to be very careful very thoughtful and under medical supervision, but in no way does it mean that they can't successfully not only drop their A1C and drop the amount of insulin that they need, but they can manage their blood sugars in more of a uh, the horizon versus a big looking at a mountain range. So it really is something that I think is it, we're going to see more and more of it as people are successful doing it. Now, it feels like we, we should definitely touch on type three since we, we've talked mm -hmm. one and two. Um, mm -hmm. Two first and one, kind of going out of order here, but I'd love to talk about type three because type three is not an official medical term yet, if I'm correct, but it's it's kind of making its way. It is making its way um, due to what they're finding. So let's let's back up a little bit. And when we were growing up, those of you that are over probably 50 years of age, our elderly grandparents would get what's called dementia, or we'd call them senior moments. And it was it was what it was. What we're actually seeing now is an actual change in the brain structure where the brain starts to actually almost digest itself and, and you get holes in the brain and it literally can lead to the patient's death. And the medical term for that is Alzheimer's disease. And what people, researchers, and if you've not read the book by Amy Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R, -E called The Alzheimer Antidote or listen to any of her podcasts or YouTubes, she does an excellent job diving into Alzheimer's. So what happens, uh, and the reason they're starting to call it type 3 diabetes, is that it is once again looking like, um, at first there was a uh, sort of a red herring where 
they thought these amyloid plaques that were building up, think of like sort of the plaque inside of our arteries, but these amyloid plaques were building up in the brain. They thought that was the reason that people were developing um, Alzheimer's type three diabetes. But back then that's, that's what they were focusing on drug drugs and medication development so that they could remove the amyloid plaque. Well, they found that the medications when they put them into early testing were actually causing very sudden and early deaths. So there is not really an effective medicinal or pharmaceutical treatment for it. Now research is looking into the impact of a malfunction in the glucose metabolism. Uh, there's parts of our brain that need glucose to function and parts that um, can function on the ketone bodies. And ketone bodies, for those of you that aren't really um, aware of them, is what we create. That's why we call it the keto diet. By dropping our carbohydrates, we create an alternate fuel source, and those are ketone bodies. And that's when the body takes that all that stored fat that we've been saving in case of a famine, and in the absence of carbohydrates with insulin low, the fat comes out. It's unlocked from the jail that's been held in on our hips. And the liver breaks it open, if you will, and creates a ketone body. Well, what they're finding is that while the glucose pathways in the brain of an Alzheimer's patient are deranged, they're malfunctioning, they don't allow the brain to have adequate nutrition, and without adequate nutrition, it cannot function. So it sort of starts auto-digesting itself for, and I'm taking something very complex and just condensing it down. When you give the brain of the Alzheimer patient ketones, whether you have them drink it or you change their diet, the function of the brain in many ways is restored or it slows the progression of Alzheimer's. Not saying it's a cure, but there are some extreme interests about finding ways to have these patients, um, and there are exogenous ketones out on the market. And absolutely, Amy and I are in agreement that while they're not necessarily a weight loss method, they can be extreme benefit with people with Alzheimer's, especially if you can't get them to change their diet. And what it does is it, it'll do all those things in the reduction of inflammation. And because it's like, if you've ever been on that road, like we were talking and maybe you're cutting, you got off the interstate, finally, it's all backed up. And now you've been detoured off of it and you have to make all these curves ketones in an Alzheimer's patient or someone with anxiety or someone with bipolar, anyone that has a neurological uh, malfunction in the brain, the brain actually in many ways prefers to use ketones as a fuel versus glucose. So I think we're seeing some tremendous benefit and potential future way that we can help people either avoid the, or reduce the chance, I should say, reduce the chance of developing Alzheimer's by an early adoption of the lifestyle of reduced carbohydrates, or if someone's in the early stages to not only hopefully change their diet, but give them exogenous ketones to allow that pathway to be used. It's a detour. The, the brain says, well, the glucose pathway is not working. I'm going to use this detour that's been there. Oh, it's, it's smooth sailing. The ketones just are amazing whether that's the ones my endogenously my body produces or if I give them something exogenous, there's a lot of benefit. From a mechanistic standpoint, like if somebody's, if we're, if we're able to produce enough glucose internally, we don't have to have any dietary glucose. Is there, like from a mechanistic standpoint, why is it that the brain prefers the ketones? And is there any instance in which the brain prefers glucose beyond that 
that is like required by the brain to function? Yeah, so that's a great question. And not being a neurologist, I'd prefer I'd refer you guys either to Amy Berger's book or Dom Dignostino's work that he's doing at the University of South Florida. He is amazing, uber smart guy. But what remember that our body can produce glucose, so that neo um, glucogenesis is going to be able to provide enough glucose to our brain for it to function. And the ketone bodies, um, just like if you if you've been, if you've ever taken a detour, you, you you find some quick ways to get around things. And so I don't really know the physiologic pathway of it, but I do know that when I listen to podcast after podcast, they talk about how the brain, most parts of the brain actually prefer the ketones. They function better because they're doing a lot of, um, a lot of the uh, warriors are Navy SEALs. A lot of the other elite um, armed forces services are really looking into having um, a ketogenic lifestyle because their their mental faculties they are at their peak physical strength um, and they are they're very trained as a team to do things but they're finding that if they have ketones in their brain whether that's exogenous or through the meat the food that they eat or fasting even that they can have superiors like a super warrior so it's pretty cool I think there's so much left for us to uncover about you think about back in the ages ago. The older people were very wise. I mean, I'm talking back in the 18th. They were valued for their wisdom. And many times I think we've just lost that. We think that once you're over 60, life is over, you know, and um, it doesn't have to be that way. I think if we um, keep ourselves active, if we look at reducing processed carbohydrates, reducing the dyes, reducing, you know, all those things that our body is not inherently meant to, to handle, we can really make major changes, not only in our future, but in our parents, if we can help them understand this. Yeah. I mean, it's such a full spectrum view, you know, from, from young age, I mean, most people with type one diagnosed relatively young and, you know, so this, this lifestyle, the ketogenic lifestyle can have a profound impact on that. And then you transition into, you know, more midlife where people are, mm -hmm. if they live in more of a sedentary life, they're eating diets, high in carbohydrates, processed foods, and they develop type two. Obviously, ketogenic diet would have a profound impact on that, and then also in the later years, people developing you know dementia, and Alzheimer's. It's it's crazy to think that their quality of life can be significantly improved by changing their nutrition. And if that nutrition is changed at a year, at an early age and have a compounding effect over one's lifetime, I mean, so many of these long term health issues could be mitigated at the get go. So it's it's truly amazing to see how simply changing what you're putting in your mouth can have a total shift, 180 degree shift in the quality of your life. Absolutely. And if I had known it at the age you are, I, so I, it, be encouraged, Robert, <laughs> you and Crystal have found so many answers so young. If I had known this back when I was your age, I, I would be superwoman right now. But I think no matter where we are in our life, it's never too late and you'll never be younger than you are today. So start early as you can. Uh, be diligent in understanding how food impacts your body. And no matter where you are today and your health, you don't have to stay there. I really appreciate you inviting me on your show today. Thank you so much. Yeah. And for the record, I think you are superwoman still. So don't say so short there. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to get a cape and, br and bring it to the next conference. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, they're saying there's probably like a million other things I can ask you. But um, for the sake of time, 
about to just do a round two on this podcast. Where can people find out more about you and, and see what you have going on? The place that I post the most on is Facebook, and that's Ask Nurse Cindy. I'll, I'll three separate words, Ask Nurse Cindy, C-I-N-D-Y. I do have a YouTube channel, but so if you have friends that don't have Facebook and YouTube, I'm trying to understand Instagram, but my daughter says I'm <laughs> I'm hopeless, but Facebook is the best place. Perfect. Perfect. I will certainly link out to that and make it easier for people to find you. And again, I, I really do appreciate the time you taken to, to talk with me because you do break things down in a very easily to digest manner that anybody listening could fully grasp. So you got a gift for spreading the good news. So keep doing what you're doing. Thanks so much, Robert. Have a great one.